Once again, the Lord has been good to us, and we have the privilege to come together to worship Him and to study together a portion of His uh, inspired Word. We're going to study tonight about the singing in the church. And before we, uh, before we look at some scriptures in the New Testament, I want to first talk a little bit about something that happened in the Old. And uh, we talk about this a lot. This is uh, possibly what it might have looked uh, like uh, if you had been on a hilltop somewhere and you looked out on the valley when the Israelites were camped. Now when they were camped, you'll see this, you see this fire, this pillar of fire. It rested over the spot that they wanted the tabernacle to be set up. And when the time came for them to uh, leave, this pillar of fire would go to the outside of the camp in the direction they were to go, and that was God's sign that it was time to pack everything up. But when God was uh, dwelling in this tent, no one could approach the tent except the priests. And then, of course, uh, not even a priest could enter the second compartment, which is called the Holy of Holies. He, that is, the high priest, could enter once a year, but not without the blood of bulls for the sins of he and his family first. So, we have this Old Testament worship, and we can learn some things. The Bible says, for whatever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And we go back to Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, or on it, or put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he commanded not, or commanded not, he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now, I think it's important to really understand what happened here. Now, first of all, the Bible says they did not offer the consecrated fire. Now, they might have thought lots of things. They might have thought like we do sometimes. They might have reasoned like this. What difference does it make? Fire is fire. Whether it comes from home, whether it, uh, uh, it comes from, from uh, the neighbor, it doesn't matter. It's fire. It burns the same, it smells the same, and it will, of course, accomplish the same mission. I don't know why, but they used fire that was not from the uh, brazen altar. The fire that God had not commanded. Now, the Lord didn't tell them uh, not to offer this fire. He just gave them the specific command to offer the fire a certain way. He gave them instructions. Now remember this, anytime uh, we're looking for evidence, anytime we're practicing something, anytime we're going to uh, do the Lord's will, it is necessary that we look for the evidence in God's Word. It is necessary that we base our ideology, that we base our work on the evidence in God's Word. The Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so everything we do must be based upon the Word of the Lord. Now. When we find a passage where God specifies, then of course we have to follow that specific command unless there is something that alters that or changes that within the scope of God's word. It's not up to me, it's not up to you, but it's up to God. Now, sometimes God gives a command and then he gives us many examples to follow. Let, let me illustrate that. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, go. Now, you remember, probably, some of you might, you may remember that when Paul Nichols went to Africa the first time, and later when Galen and even Terry as a little boy went, brethren were opposed to them flying. They were opposed to it because Paul didn't fly. 
And uh, he couldn't read anywhere in the Bible where preachers ever flew. Well, all of that's true. And uh, all of that's right. But uh, they don't understand. They don't understand the, the command. Now, he says to go. He does not specify a method. And always included in the command to, to, to act is the authority to carry out that command. So the point is, he said go. Since he did not specify a particular way, then unless we only find one example where they went, then, then we're at liberty to choose the method in which we go. Well, in Acts the 8th chapter, the Bible says that Philip the evangelist ran. Now, that's an example. Does that mean that we have to run? I'm going to be in trouble if I have to run after somebody that runs very far. Now, we find that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 21, rode on a donkey. Now, I don't want to ride on a donkey, I'm going to tell you right now. But we have another example that Jesus rode on a donkey. In the book of Acts, we find that Paul rode on a ship. In fact, when you study the New Testament, they used every available means to go, to carry out that command. And so that implied in that is flying. Flying doesn't change the command, but flying is included in the command. It, we have authority to fly, but we do not have specific authority to fly. The Lord didn't specify that, but it's included in the command. Now, in this example, we're going to notice what God commanded. Now, God commanded for them to keep the fire burning on that brazen altar day and night. Now, when Moses had put everything together and uh, had the sacrifice on the altar, he applied blood to everything. All the children of Israel were, were encompassed about this place, and God's fire, this pillar of fire here, rained down upon the sacrifice and consumed it, sanctifying what Moses did in the eyes of the people. Now God said, don't ever let that fire go out. You keep it burning day and night. This was the altar. Uh, one of the uh, brethren talked about this. You know, we don't realize how many sacrifices there were. Every year on the Day of Atonement, do you realize there were at least 77 animals killed in one place? Have you ever, have you ever butchered a deer? You remember how it smelled, Terry? Can you imagine butchering 77 deer in one day? Can you imagine the stench and the blood? I'm glad we don't live under that law, aren't you? Every morning, every evening, morning about 9 o'clock, afternoon about 3 o'clock, they made a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. There were sacrifices called free will offerings. There were sacrifices called burnt offerings. There were literally thousands of animals. In fact, on the, on the Passover, the first Passover in Exodus 12, have you ever thought about how many animals must have been sacrificed in Exodus 12? There could have been as many as 50,000 in one day. They had to be slain between the two evenings, somewhere between 3 and 5 o'clock. 50,000 animals. Well, what's so amazing about that is all of those animals never could take away sin. All of those sacrifices could never finish sin. It was necessary for Jesus to come and eradicate those sacrifices. Well, this is the altar that God rained the fire upon. And they were commanded, look at this. 
A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. This was commanded to Aaron and his son. So on this altar, it was to burn day and night. There was to be a fire from this altar 365 days a year. Then it says in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 12, Then he shall take a censer, that is a fire pan, full of burning coals of fire from the altar. So right there, they were to go to that altar and they were to take the coals from that altar and they were to put it into their fire sensor. That was commanded by the Lord. It was necessary for them to do that. A sensor full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. Now the common priests, Nadab and Abihu, could perform that service. They were to get their fire uh, from that altar. And then, of course, they would take the coals inside the holy place. Now, I want to clarify this. Somebody came to me one time and said, uh, there wasn't any roof on the tabernacle. Well, that's wrong. In fact, inside the tabernacle, the holy place and the most holy place, there was no outside light that could come in, only the light that heaven above provided the candlestick, and the holy Shekinah in the Holy of Holies. But this illustration is open so that we can see. This is for teaching purposes only. It was a covered structure that you couldn't see inside. So these priests, Nadab and Abihu, were to take this fire. They were to go to this altar, get the coals, and go through this veil, enter into the holy, of, uh, to the holy place, and then offer incense and fire upon the golden altar. They, of course, had to do that every day, twice a day. And God told them that uh, this uh, was to be done according to his will. Now, the scripture says they offered strange fire. Now, I don't know where they got the fire or why they offered it, but they offered strange fire, and God literally barbecued those boys. And God is so angry. I want you to think about this. God is so angry because of what they've done. He tells Moses, their uncle, he tells Moses, or Aaron, their father, don't you even act like they ever existed. You don't mourn them. You don't have a funeral. You just go on from this point forward as if they never existed. God's angry. Because you see, they did not sanctify him in the eyes of the people. They didn't follow his will. Now, I'm going to tell you something. He's no less happy with us when we do not follow the dictates of his word. And I think that this is very appropriate for what we're going to talk about today. Because men tell us that it doesn't matter. That you can do whatever you want to do. You can worship however you want to worship. But uh, we learn from this, if we learn nothing else, that when God says something, he means it. And he expects us to obey it. He expects us to follow it. They offered strange fire. The Lord commanded not. Well, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, the fire and the torment that we're going to face if we don't obey the Lord is a whole lot worse than what Nadab and Abihu endured. It's eternal fire. And so when we, when we do something, when we practice something, we better be sure that what we're doing, the Lord has commanded it. Well, what about the singing in the church? If you search through the New Testament, 
What does the Bible say about it? Let's look at all of the verses. Just take a couple of minutes to look at all of the verses concerning singing. But I, before we begin, I ask the question, where is our piano? Why don't we have a piano tonight? Can you explain intelligently why we don't? Think about it. Can you talk to your peers at school and explain to them why we do not have a piano? Some elderly sister many years ago told one of our uh, old preachers that she felt sorry for the church and that she was going to donate a piano because she knew the church couldn't afford it. Well, is that why we don't have a piano? Is that why we don't have one of those in, in the assembly tonight? Where are the drums? You know, in Zambia, we have a problem with drums. We have to teach against that. We have a, church, a group, not in our fellowship, but we have a group of the Church of Christ that has drums in their assemblies. They use choirs to sing for them. We have that problem even uh, in the religious world in America. Where is the guitar? Where is the clapping? Where is the dancing? They even dance. We don't have that problem, I guess, that I know of in America. But uh, where is all this stuff? Why don't we have these things? Why don't we practice these things? Well, of course, what we need to realize is that if it is something the Lord has not commanded, we will reap eternal fire. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In Mark 14, verse 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 16, verse 25, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Now, I want to point something out about this verse. This verse, I misunderstood this for so long. And I want to be sure that everybody understands what's being said here. The understanding is not the person who's singing. It's not the person who's leading the song. He's talking about leading a song. In the first century church, they sometimes were led by the Spirit to get up and lead a song, lead a hymn. And he's talking about speaking in an unknown tongue. And he says in the context, if you study the context, he's talking about a person singing, and he's talking about the understanding of the audience. And Paul says, I will pray in the Spirit. I'll pray by the power of the Holy Spirit and with the understanding. In other words, when I pray, I'm not going to use a tongue that people in the audience can't understand. I'm going to pray so that people can understand me. Now, while that's specifically what he's talking about, that even applies to, to our service. You know, sometimes you get in a large assembly and someone's asked to lead the prayer and they pray to the bench. Now, I know I'm not very old, but I've lost a lot of my hearing. When you do that, I don't hear you. You see, when you pray, when you're asked, you're appointed to lead the prayer, then you need to pray clearly, distinctly, and loudly enough so that everybody can hear, so that we can all say amen to that prayer. So in this passage, when he says, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding, he's not talking about singing according to what the words mean in the song. That's the way I used to apply it. 
Now it's true, we have to worship God in spirit and truth. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 4. And that means that you have to sing and mean what the words say. If you say, throw out the lifeline, and all you do is throw out the fishing line, then you're not singing in the truth. If you say, cast or count your blessings, name them one by one, and then you complain about your plot and your situation in life all the time, and don't count your blessings and don't appreciate what you have, then you're not singing that song with the spirit and the understanding, you see. But in this passage, the word understanding has to do with the other person. And uh, if, if, you, if you don't agree with that, go back and study it. Because you'll find that that's the case. That's what it has to mean in that context. But the point I want to make is, Paul says, I will sing. I will sing. Again, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, Mr. Vine tells us that this verse really should be separated like this. Now, in the Greek, now I'm not a Greek scholar, so don't come and ask me a bunch of Greek questions because I don't know the answer. Now, Frankie knows that Brother Donal could read Greek, and he did know some answers. And there's some brethren in our brotherhood that know some answers. But, but the point is this. When he's talking about teaching and admonishing, he's talking about two things in this passage. First, he says, teach and admonish one another. And then he says, sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and teaching are not the same thing, and they're not done together. Now, it's true that we may learn some things when we're singing, and we may edify and build up one another during the singing, but that's not what this verse is talking about. They're actually two distinct things, the word of Christ dwelling in us, teaching and admonishing one another, and then, of course, singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing to you. Incidentally, that word assembly right there is ecclesia. Again, James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any, uh, uh, anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. In Acts 2, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Included in praise is singing. Now it's stated there, but it's included. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Song, singing, sing, fruit of the lips, praise, all of these things are mentioned, and yet there's no place for instrumental music. There's no place where an instrument is included. In fact, those all fall under the category of the Lord commanded not. It doesn't matter if you have a beautiful voice and you can get up and sing a solo. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach us that in the assembly we should be singing that way. Now singing, who is to sing? How do we know that when we sing it's a congregational thing? Well, the Bible has the answer. The Lord has commanded. He's told us who is to sing. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, he's not writing to a group. 
He, he's writing to all the Christians. He's writing to everybody. Over there in Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Who does Jesus love? Who did Jesus die for? He died for us all. He died for everybody in the church at Ephesus. He died for everybody in the assembly this night. And we're all his children if we've obeyed the gospel. He's writing this to everybody. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, in, or in view of this, this, this is to all the church. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine. Now, incidentally, that word drunk right there is called an inceptive verb. And it means to grow drunk. Now think about that. It doesn't mean you're sauced. It doesn't mean you've passed out. It means you're becoming drunk. That's what it means. You're becoming drunk. That's what that word means. It's a different word. And you're going to find the same word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And then you'll find the second drunkenness that's mentioned in that passage. And in that passage, it's not translated drunk, but it's translated drunkenness and, and drunkenness in the King James. In the New King James, it's a little different, and, and the word drunk is used. But the point is, one of those words, again, is the inceptive verb, and it means to grow drunk. The second one means it's your dog drunk or your sopped. Now, we're commanded... We're commanded, do not be drunk. In other words, don't grow drunk. He says, if you grow drunk, or if you're growing drunk, if you're in the process of growing drunk with wine, this is dissipation. Or this is to the extreme, in other words. Even the state of California tells you when you take your first sip that the alcohol begins to attack certain parts of your brain. You know, it's, it's paradoxical, these commercials they have. Drink re responsibly. And yet the first part of your brain that's, uh, that's, uh, that's touched by the alcohol is the part of your brain that's reasonable. It's a paradox. How can you drink reasonably when you're taking a drug? That's what alcohol is, a drug. When you're taking a drug that softens your reasoning ability. Well, the point is this, folks. It's not just wrong to be dead dog drunk. It's a sin to drink alcohol as a recreational item, period. It's a sin. Now, obviously, we use medications and we use drugs for medical reasons. If a doctor's prescribed to you a medicine that has alcohol in it, it's not wrong. But if you're drinking that for the fun of it, it's wrong. Because drinking alcohol is wrong. And he says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice now, he tells us that we need to be filled with the Spirit. How can you fill yourself with the Spirit? Don't fill yourself with wine, but fill yourself with the Spirit. By speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, some Christians don't like to sing. Isn't that odd? 
I never could figure that out. But the Bible says if you're spiritual, you like to save. Sometimes I sit in an audience or I get up to lead a song and I see people not singing. Now maybe you have the croup or you have a problem if you didn't sing tonight. But you know what's sad is sometimes when I live at a place, I see that happen every service. You see, you're commanded to sing. You're commanded to sing whether you're leading the song or you're sitting in your seat. You're commanded to sing whether you're a man or a woman. Sometimes people say, well, it's a, it's a contradiction because the Bible tells the women to be silent. But remember now, singing is praise and the teaching is instruction. The teaching is to the audience, but the singing is to God. There's a difference there. And when he commands the woman to be silent, he's not talking about singing. He's talking about instructing. He's talking about the teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 and 5. They're not parallel. Now, if they were parallel, then we would have to sing solos because only one man at a time can teach, see. But we're commanded. There's a contradiction if that were the case because we're commanded as the church, we're commanded all the saints to sing. Doesn't matter if you sing like a canary or sound like a moose. You're supposed to sing. Now, if you sound like a moose, you don't have to be the loudest singer. But you still are commanded to sing. We're all commanded to sing. We're all commanded to participate in the song uh, service. All men, all women, every Christian, we're to sing and make melody in our hearts. Every Christian is commanded to sing. In the New Testament, Christians are only found singing and praising God with their lips. Now, I want you to look at this passage. We already read it, but I'm going to read it again. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, we know that singing is vocal. Nobody questions that. But notice now, the command is to every Christian Number one, to sing. Then number two, to make melody. Now, there's a lot of controversy among uh, language scholars about the word making melody. Some people think that the word making melody means to strum or to twitch. Now, let's give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe that's what it means. Now, first of all, if that is what it means, just like everybody has to sing, Everybody has to play. See? And it isn't it interesting that the Lord solves the problem because he tells us what we play. He says, sing with your voice. And then he says, play. But he doesn't just say play. He tells us what to play. He says, play in your heart. He specified what the instrument is. It's our hearts. He's not only told us to sing with our voices, but if that word, making melody, really does mean to twitch or to, to pluck, he's talking about plucking our hearts. And you see, every one of us can do that. Everyone, now, my sister can play the piano. There's a few songs that she learned to play when I was uh, a lot younger, when she was a little girl, and uh, those were some of my favorite uh, uh, classical 
songs. And she would play those very beautifully on the piano. Great. That's a good thing. But we can't bring that into the church. It isn't that we don't like musical instruments. That has nothing to do with it. We're talking about what the Lord wants. We're talking about what the Lord has commanded. And he's commanded us to sing and make melody in our hearts. No one during the New Testament age ever is found using an instrument of music. Jesus, Peter, Paul, and all the rest sang with their voice in praise to God. Now how or when did this change? This is interesting. We're going to talk a little bit about history for several hundred years. I'm going to read to you a few quotes. Now Justin Martyr was a Christian, as far as I know. And... Uh, he lived in the second century, about 39 years after John died. I want you to listen to what he says. The use of instrumental music was not received in the Christian churches. Now this is after the apostles have died. He says, we're not using instrumental music. As it was among the Jew in their infant state. But only the use of plain songs. Simply singing is not agreeable to children, the aforementioned mentioned Jews, but singing with lifeless instruments and with dancing and clapping is. On this account, the use of these kind of instruments and of others agreeable to children is removed from the songs of the churches, and there is left remaining simple singing. Now, we read what happened in the early church. Now we've read what happened after the last apostle died. Now let's look at somebody else here. Whoops, going the wrong way here. Tertullian, now he lived in the third century. He said musical concerts with uh, viol and lute belonged to Apollo. You know, he was a false god. To the muses, to Minerva and Mercury, who invented them. Ye who are Christians hate and abhor these things, whose very authors themselves must be the object of loathing and aversion. Isn't that amazing? Yet people want to bring these in to the worship of the church. Eusebius, who lived in part of the third century into the fourth century, of old at the time of those of the circumcision were worshiping with symbols and types, it was not inappropriate to send up hymns to God with the Psalter and the Cathara, but we in an inward manner keep the part of the Jew, according to the saying of the apostle, Romans 2.28. We render our hymns with a living Psalter and a living Cathara, with spiritual psalms. The unison of voices of Christians would be more acceptable to God than any musical instrument. Another fellow wrote, and this man was a denominational man in 1987 in Christianity Today. His name was Paul Earnhardt. After studying the reformers and the ancient uh, histories, he says it is evident that the post-apostolic churches did not worship with musical instruments. Isn't that amazing? You'd think by the way people act that it's always been the way it is today. But obviously it was not. In uh, 606, as we stated last evening, the Roman Catholic Church started. Well, in 666, Pope Vitalian authorized the use of instrumental music. But there was such a storm of protest to its introduction, it was thrown out of the Catholic Church. And it was, of course, gone for many years until Pope Gregory reintroduced it in 1074. Or... No, I got that wrong. Pope Gregory abolished it, but then, of course, it was brought back in later. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the Reformation. 
and I mentioned last night Martin Luther. He wrote, wrote this about it. The organ in the worship is the insignia of Baal. Isn't that amazing? The organ in worship is the insignia of Baal. John Calvin says, men who are, found, uh, are fond of outward pomp may delight in that noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us is far more pleasing to him. And he says here, he's, he was a founder and the organizer of modern Presbyterianism, and he again states that musical instruments should not be found in the church of our Lord. Again, John Wesley says, who founded the uh, Episcopal Church, I have no objection to the instruments in our chapels, provided they are neither heard nor seen. I thought that was interesting. Adam Clark says, who is a Methodist commentator, I am an old man and an old minister, and I here declare that I never knew them, that is musical instruments, productive of any good in the worship of God, and have had reason to believe that they were productive of much evil. Music. As a science, I esteem and admire, but instruments of music in the house of God I abominate and abhor. This is the abuse of music, and here I register my protest against all such corruptions in the worship of the office in the worship. Charles Spurgeon wrote, We do not need them, that is musical instruments. They would, they would hinder rather than help our praise. Sing unto him. This is the sweetest and best music. No instrument like the human voice. What a degradation to subplant the intelligent song of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet and refined niceties of a choir or the blowing off of wind from the inanimate billows and pipes. We might as well, listen to this, we might as well pray with machinery or by machinery as to praise by it. Now these fellows were denominational men and yet they recognized that in the first century church there was not anything like instrumental music found in the services. The Lord commanded not. God's people respected the Bible. They followed the teaching of the scripture. They realized that they had to follow a thus saith the Lord. And all of those things that we've been talking about were not within the scope of the scripture. They left out all those things that sometimes people bring in to the church. The Lord wants congregational singing in praise to God. Where's the piano? Drums, choir, guitar, dancing, clapping. Well, they're outside the truth. They're outside the truth. And whatever the name is on the building, if we offer strange music, then we're going to suffer the consequences and we're going to face judgment for that. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about that, but I'm going to stop right there. If you're here tonight, I want to ask you, are you on the Lord's side? Joshua said in the long ago, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Are you ready to serve the Lord today? Are you ready to allow the blood of Jesus to forgive you of sin? The scripture tells us that we have to be washed in the blood of Jesus. You know, in John the 20th chapter, there's a beautiful picture portrayed. You remember that... Uh, that uh, Martha came, or rather Mary, came to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said, touch me not, or, or 
He explained to her that he had a mission. He said, I have not yet ascended to my father. He said, I've got to go to the father. But he said, I want you to hasten and go tell the disciples that I am going to present myself to them. And then he disappeared and Mary went and carried out her task. Well, a lot of people believe that when Jesus left, he carried his blood to heaven. He went with his own blood. Not for his sins. He was guiltless. You know, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies with the blood of bulls. Then he came back out and made a sacrifice of a goat. And then he went back in a second time. But Jesus went once with his own blood for you and you and me. And now all we have to do is access that blood. And Paul says, know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. It was in his death he shed his blood. So if you're here tonight and you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, you're willing to repent of your sins, you're ready to confess his name, you're ready to be buried with him in baptism, then do it. Don't let anything stop you. Make up your mind that you're going to serve the Lord and you're going to follow him whatever it takes, whatever it costs. And Jesus pleads, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And he makes a promise. He says, I will give you rest. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.